And that's how they think that AI would be regulated by coming up with new rules. And there's a lot of room for that. And that is important, but that is really not the only thing. It's really crucial, in my opinion, to first and foremost, use the existing laws we have and apply them on AI, right? We already have non-discrimination laws, consumer protection laws. We don't need to reinvent the wheel with new laws. We can use the existing ones we have. Welcome to the Regulating AI podcast. Join host Sanjay Puri as he explores the dynamic and developing world of artificial intelligence governance. Each episode features deep dives with global leaders at the forefront of regulating AI responsibly, tackling the challenges using AI can bring about head-on and enabling balance without hindering innovation. Welcome to the Regulating AI podcast. Artificial intelligence AI stands at the forefront of technological evolution with experts predicting that it could add trillions of dollars to our GDP. But it could also negatively impact our workforce and national security. So how do we regulate it without stifling innovation? Our podcast features insights from various perspectives, from industry leaders and government officials to advocacy groups. Together, they address pivotal questions that are needed to create practical legislation. I'm very excited to have Dr. Ravid Dotan with us today. She's the CEO of TechBetter. She's doing research and consulting about AI responsibility. I invited her on this show as it is very important to get different perspectives towards framing AI legislation. And AI ethics is a very important issue. Welcome, Dr. Dotan. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the Regulating AI podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Great to be here. Great. Dr. Dothan, President Biden announced a sweeping executive order on October 30th. What are your thoughts about this EO? I'm very excited about this executive order. The thing that most stands out to me is the emphasis on the role of federal agencies. So there are two trends in the domain of AI regulation that are impacted. One is that a lot of people, when they think of AI regulation, they think of coming up with new bills, new laws, like the EUAI Act, right? And that's how they think that AI would be regulated, by coming up with new rules. And there's a lot of room for that, and that is important, but that is really not the only thing. It's really crucial, in my opinion, to first and foremost, use the existing laws we have and apply them on AI, right? We already have non-discrimination laws, consumer protection laws. We don't need to reinvent the wheel with new laws. We can use the existing ones we have. We just had recently a case with the FTC banning Rite Aid from using facial recognition because of discrimination issues that they had. We really need to see more of this activity. And the executive order really doubles down on that because it gives a lot of guidance to the federal agencies in the U.S. to act more within their jurisdiction to enforce the existing laws on AI. And that is something that we're not seeing as much of in regular AI regulation. So that's one really important aspect, really emphasizing the role of enforcing the existing laws we have on AI. The other thing that I want to emphasize about this executive order is that it is talking about taking proactive action about AI. This approach is different from the approach we've been seeing, for example, from the United Kingdom, right? Because 
after the EOI Act has gained a lot of momentum, the United Kingdom came up and said, actually, we have a really different approach. We are worried about regulation, conflicting with innovation, and we're going to lean more into voluntary commitments. This approach of using voluntary commitments to replace regulation is impactful. We are seeing more and more governments thinking positively about this approach. So very recently, we've seen Germany, France, and Italy saying that they think that foundation models should be regulated with voluntary commitments. The problem is, I don't think those voluntary commitments are an effective way to encourage AI responsibility at all. In fact, I just finished a research project analyzing companies' public disclosures about their AI governance activities. I'm not seeing any evidence of that those voluntary commitments are being effective. Rather, they seem to be a tool of ethics washing. So I'm really glad that this executive order is not going into this thread of voluntary commitments, and it's very clearly signaling that this is not where the U.S. is going. So basically what you're saying is it emphasizes existing rules that already are in place, whether it's with the FTC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. We already have, as you said, many things on the books. And enhances some of those. Now, you also mentioned something about the EU. The EU on December 8th has reached a political consensus, Dr. Gautam, on the EU AI Act. How do you contrast that with what we are trying to do? And what are your thoughts on the EU AI Act? Contrasting and contrasted with the executive order? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the two documents are very, very different. So the executive order is not a regular law, right? What it is doing, it's giving instructions to the federal agencies, things that they should be doing. There are a lot of deadlines within this or that number of days. This or that agency should come up with this report or this or that. Super important, but really different from what the EOI Act is doing. The EOI Act is a bill. So it is a proposed law that is expected to pass soon in the next few months. What it's doing, it's dividing AI applications into risk categories. There's an unacceptable risk level. So these applications in this category are expected to be outlawed, high risk applications expected to have hand regulation, and then lower risk with lower regulation, and then foundation models, which are the technology underlying things like ChatGPT, have their own kind of regulation. And for each group, the bill lays out different kind of rules in addition to sanction mechanisms. It's a really different frame of mind. It's a really different entity, the EOI Act and the executive order. The EOI Act is more geared towards immediate action. Uh, I mean, as immediate as regulation can be, because it's going to take a couple of years until it comes into effect. <laughs> there are, at least there's rumblings that France might be against the EOI Act because obviously they have some very important companies like Mistral and others. And this is actually going to go into force in 2025, right? Do you see it inhibiting companies, whether it's companies like Mistral or even US-based companies? I mean, how is that going to play out? Will it inhibit the development of innovation in EU, so to speak? Yes. So a lot of people are worried that we're hearing that slogan over and over, is regulation contrary to innovation? I have to say that line of argument kind of confuses me often because we already have a lot of regulation telling us about many things that we're not supposed to be doing, right? We now have to manufacture cars with seatbelts. We have to have our drugs go through the FDA or whatever the agency in whatever country. 
we are very much used to having regulation when there are things that are dangerous and important. And we often accept that this is needed. Sometimes innovation needs to be inhibited when it can create things that are really dangerous. Conceptually, I don't think the slogan of innovation inhibits regulation it doesn't resonate with me. Of course, there is overregulation and those kind of issues, but I don't think that the concept of regulating AI in itself is somehow problematic, which is why another reason that I'm not in favor of the approach of replacing regulation with voluntary commitments. But you don't think the EU AI Act inhibits innovation, as you said. It, you don't think regulation inhibits innovation, right? I mean, it could inhibit innovation that would be damaging, and that would be a good thing. Okay, so that would be a good thing. Dr. Oten, what do you see as the biggest ethical risks right now in the AI systems that are being developed and used, in your view? This is a question I'm getting very often. The reality is that we can't really crown any one risk as the one important risk. One reason is that we can't compare between them. How do you compare fairness risks, privacy risks, right? There's no comparison. Having said that, uh, since I am getting this question, one strategy, I'll just say one risk that I want to highlight. And one risk that I want to highlight that is sometimes not in people's minds as much is risk to truth. So with generative AI, there's a lot of conversations about misinformation, disinformation. Usually it comes up in the context of, say, political systems, rights. We have election coming up. It's really dangerous to think what people could be doing with those technologies, but that's not what I want to focus on. I want to focus on science. I do have an academic background. That's my, yeah, my home training. And here's a phenomenon that I'm seeing really often. People, even really educated people, do not understand the problem of misinformation that the tools create. So they might go to generative AI chatbots to give them an outline, to give them a summary of something. Well, they kind of know in their minds, I hope, somewhere that these tools often give just false information. Some tendency, I'm not sure why, it leads them to those tools. The risk is getting a lot of false information inside of the scientific edifice, right? Of course, it's flawed, like any body of text, but it is the body of text that we are relying most on to be some sort of source of truth. If even that is getting tainted by you know, being peppered with false information and false papers that never existed, then we are at risk of the collapse of the scientific system. And that's something that really scares me. So the risk of false information, I think, is something that really concerns you the most. But then how feasible is it to create, Dr. Dutton, unbiased data sets and truly, you know, fair AI systems? Is that fairly possible? So I'll reframe the question a little bit. People are worried about fairness in machine learning, right? Or artificial intelligence. Why? Because they're thinking of the discriminations that the tools can cause. And we've seen it many times, right? I'll just give an example for listeners who might not be as familiar. Excellent research that I saw on discrimination in AI for loan decisions. So in this research paper, and I unfortunately don't remember the name right now uh, of the authors or the paper, uh, but in this research paper, they decided to quantify discrimination in loan decisions, mortgage loan decisions. So they started with, in the U.S., you have to report applications for loan decisions and yeah, applications for mortgage loans and the decisions about those applications. 
And so the first phase of the study said, let's try and quantify discrimination just in the decisions as they were made thus far by humans. This study is from 2022, if I remember correctly. And so they found that, yes, there's discrimination. Surprise! And they found that if you are a Black person in the U.S., you are 54% chance less likely to have your loan approved relative to someone who is exactly the same as you, except that they are not Black. 54% less likely to get your loan approved. That is discrimination. It's terrible. That is reality also. So that was the second phase. Let's quantify the current discrimination. Second phase, now let's take an off-the-shelf AI system that makes decisions on mortgage loans, run it on the same data, and see what kind of decisions we make, that we get, and whether discrimination increased or decreased. It increased substantially. It became 67% chance Less likely for you to get your loan approved if you are a Black person relative to someone else who is just like you, except that they are not Black. So we're seeing an exacerbation. It's not just reflecting discrimination in society. It's making it worse. And that is a problem that people are concerned with, which is why they ask about data sets. Because the data sets are being blamed all the time. You know, why do you get discrimination in AI? Well, garbage in, garbage out, is what people say, right? It's because that already have the discrimination in the data set, so now you're going to have it in the output. It's true, but it's also misleading because when we just blame the data set, we are in a way taking responsibility off of the company itself that could in fact do many things. It's not just about enriching the data set. There are many steps along the way that the company can take to fix the problem. And so when we ask about fairness, the question, in my opinion, is not how to fix the data set, but rather how to fix the outcome. Fixing the data set may or may not be a part of fixing the outcome. The question you asked me, can a system be truly fair, right? That's how I would rephrase it, because to me, I thought about the data set, whether the system couldn't be truly fair. In that question, I let's just think back about life. Can life be fair? Can a person be fair? Can a system of rules be truly fair? These are questions that no one can really answer. And I'm saying this as a person, my background is in philosophy. It is a discipline that has studied fairness. I have studied fairness. I have taught fairness. It's a complicated issue. We don't know, right? Think about DEI issues, right? Diversity, equity, and inclusion. We now want companies to have DEI policies and we want them to be fair in hiring. What does it even mean to ask, can a company be truly fair? No one really knows because it's not something to know, right? These are body decisions to think to be made. What kind of people do you want to hire? But we can do better on various metrics. And I think that is what we need to focus on in AI as well to improve. So you are saying that the AI systems in many cases are actually more biased than humans, right? That's right. Wow. So then what ethical principles should be embedded in these AI systems to make sure, well, that they are not biased? Or should there be some core ethical principles that should be embedded in there? Yeah, I'll answer by analogy. Let's go with the analogy I just mentioned, the analogy to hiring. You have a company, company hires people. We might want to ask, what ethical principles need to be embedded in the company to make sure that hiring is fair? And there's a way of understanding this question that makes it kind of impossible to answer because... What does their hiring mean? 50-15 men and women, do we need to do affirmative hiring? These are just heavy body questions. So instead of that, I would say, 
what we need to promote the AI responsibility is companies taking the values that they generally have, not specifically about AI, and just embedding them into the design process. For example, many companies already have the value of equity or fairness or whatever they want to call it. It's a value they already have as a company, and it already means something to them. The first step, I would say, is figure out how to measure that thing, that value that this company has, and it might vary between companies, and that is okay. But figure out how to quantify that and measure that. For example, in the loan decision case, what does it mean to be fair? Here's a first question to ask what outcome are you even measuring? You could measure, for example, the loan decision, right? You Maybe you want the same approval rate for people of different races. That is one version of fairness, right? But another version of fairness is what about the amount of the loan, right? Because in the same paper that I mentioned, the third step was trying to fix the approval rate, which they did. But one of the costs were having a lower average loan amount for Black people. So on the one hand, you know, we proved one fairness metric and we made another worse. What's better? What's more fair? That's a value decision. For companies, the first step would be figure out what are those things that you're going to measure and what your threshold is. Yeah. So then should certain AI applications be banned or restricted based on some of these concerns, uh, ethical concerns that you have raised, Dr. Dothan? Yeah, I think, you know, AI is a tricky technology because it's so flexible. It's not even one, weren't there? There are so many kinds. It's difficult to define what exactly counts as AI and what doesn't. But think of the kind of things that this technology can do, right? It can make weapons way more lethal. Here's one thing it can do. It can create, and we've seen it happen already, more newer danger, new and better in some way, poisonous materials. It can do a lot of things that we ban already. First of all, it should be banned from doing those things that we are already banning unrelated to AI. It just, it's unfortunate that because it's related to this technology, people somehow forget our usual kind of human code of conduct, but it doesn't matter. Some things are just banned, whether they're based on AI or not. First and foremost, I would say ban those things that are banned anyway. It doesn't matter that AI is a part of it. So ban the things that are already causing harm is what you're saying. It doesn't matter if AI is in there. Yeah, because that, I think it's not, I don't even see why that would be controversial. Those things are banned anyway. Uh. Yeah. So then Dr. Dothan, some of the things that you obviously talk about are pretty worrisome. So what educational initiatives would best spread awareness of AI ethics issue? Should companies have an AI ethics officer? Cities have a... AI ethics officer, what, how would you create some educational initiatives around this? Okay, so there are two questions here that I want to address separately. How to increase awareness to AI ethics or AI responsibility, that's one question. And the other question is whether companies should have, or organizations more generally, should have a person responsible, you know, a chief of AI ethics. So I'll start with this latter question. It's really tricky. Because what often happens, and I've seen it time and time again, there will be a person, that person will be designated, quote unquote, the AI ethics person. But once that person had received that designation, two things happen. One, now it's their problem. So no one else feels like they have to think about this because it's this person's problem. Second, the existence of the role itself, people take it as a sign that the company is now ethical or something. 
And so it precludes that person from actually being affected, right? Because it's the existence of the world itself that somehow is becoming the, the signal for change. So now for that person, it's going to be difficult to get buy-in from people in the company, junior employees, as well as senior management, because the problem is solved. We already have an ethics person. So it's, it, it's creating a paradox often, and it's a shame. So the question I think to focus on is whether companies should embed that infrastructure of AI responsibility. The answer is absolutely yes. How that looks like may be different in different companies, but we shouldn't look for signals like whether they have an AI person. It's not going to solve the problem, and it may even be counterproductive. So that's about the AI person, and then the or or I can pause if you want to blow up before I go on to the second part. No, in the executive order with President Biden, he calls for a chief AI officer in every government agency, and now they've started hiring a lot of government agencies have that. Should the chief AI officer have an ethics component or skills in there, or what do you think, or is that completely separate? It can't be separate, because if it's separate, it becomes like a side project. (laughs) But I do think that no one can be an expert in everything, and no one is expected to. It's good to delegate, but it's also essential that the highest people in charge are an important part of the decision-making about their responsibility as well. Okay. Maybe have a separate person in there or at least have that skill available. Dr. Doton, then if let's just say an AI system causes harm, then who should be liable according to you? Should the developer, the deployer, or the user, or all of them are responsible for this? Yes. I love this question. I want to use an analogy, but okay. My short answer is it's going to depend on the circumstances. And even though this case may seem new and foreign to us, it's actually really similar to things that we already know. And it's important to notice that similarity. I'll give an example. Suppose a car crashes into a tree and the driver dies. Who is responsible? Is it the driver? Is it the company that made the car? Is it the person who planted the tree? Or, I'm sorry, the city ball that planted the tree. The reality is it's really going to depend on the details. If the car crashed into the tree because the brakes were faulty, because the company didn't check it properly, then it is the company's fault. If it crashed into a tree because the driver got drunk, then it's the driver's fault. And we already know this kind of thinking. We already know about distributed responsibility, and we should apply those concepts to AI as well. So what you're saying is it depends on the situation. Dr. Lothan, there's a big debate right now on open sourcing as there's camps open source, closed source, whether it's Microsoft is closed source, OpenAI is closed source, Google is closed source, and IBM and Facebook is open source. Where do you come out on this debate? Should we have open sourcing of these large language models? You know, I haven't decided. I'm kind of neutral on this question. Why? I'm just curious. Here are the two sides of this topic as I understand them. One side is, okay, there are many sides, but here are some sides that are especially prevalent to me. One side, one side that some people are saying, and I've heard saying looks like this come from OpenAI. Oh, it should be closed source because it can be really dangerous, right? Because then people could use it. People who are not us can use it in really dangerous ways. But the other side is then those technologies can leak anyway. And if the code is open, then we also have means to protect ourselves against them because we understand them. We are also in a better position to criticize them and make them better, right? There are some real problems with the fact that OpenAI is closed source. No one really knows what database it's trained on. 
that prevents us from really knowing whether they are violating copyright law. For example, it also prevents us from knowing whether how deep their fairness and discrimination issues go. So, for example, just yesterday, in the last couple of days, we heard that one of the biggest data sets people use for training, Lion, actually contained a lot of images of child abuse. So it had to go offline. It's possible that OpenAI trained on it, which means that their outcome, their outputs might have a problem on child abuse. If we had that information, that would help us understand how we should, for example, regulate or engage with their technology. So that could be an argument for open source, for example. On the other hand, there could be other more efficient ways that don't subject companies to revealing their IP to deal with the same issues. I guess I'm still, maybe a part of the answer to this question would depend on what kind of regulation exists and especially what kind of transparency requirements are out there, because I think that could help alleviate some of the problems that we're currently facing with the closed source companies. To follow on that issue, Dr. Dutton, there's a big concern that AI could end up like in social media in the hands of three, four, five big tech companies. Is that something that worries you? And if so, then what can we do about it? That it's, you know, you have OpenAI, you have Google, you have Microsoft, Facebook. Right now, the world's talking square in social media is controlled by three, four big companies, and that could happen with AI. Yes, I think some might say that it has already happened. There are many small companies who are doing AI as well, but the big companies have a lot of influence. In a way, it's kind of unavoidable because AI has to be trained on copious amounts of data, and it's only select companies who are able to collect that data process that data, train on that data. And that gives an advantage to the bigger companies. You know, going back to the question of whether regulation stifles innovation or not, often I hear this question in the context of smaller businesses. But the reason that regulation, I think often, I don't know, this is a hypothesis, right? But I think it's very possible that the reason that regulation stifles specifically SMEs, small and medium enterprises, is because of the lobbying of the bigger companies. We've seen earlier this year lobbying companies from Microsoft to OpenAI going literally around the world to talk to regulators to influence regulation to be in their favor. I get it. I get what they want to do. It. It's their right. At the same time, we're not really seeing avenues for the smaller businesses to influence regulation. When we see the kind of companies that are invited to testify to the various lawmakers again and again, we're seeing big tech. We're not seeing the smaller companies. If we want to make room for the smaller companies in the AI landscape, then AI regulation should keep them in mind. And that starts with literally giving them a seat at the table. And that's one of the things that we try to do here at Regulating AI, because the concern in one of your posts I saw, you actually point out the witnesses for these hearings. You have a picture that kind of points out who has actually testified, and it's either representatives of these big tech companies or big universities. You don't see a voice of small businesses, community colleges or stuff. You had a very good visual representation. And you kind of point out it takes hundreds of millions of dollars to train this data. So it kind of is self-generating where these companies are dominating. But is there something that can be done? I mean, we are trying to get all of these people a seat at the table. We call them over. We build partnerships. Do you have any suggestions on that? The practicalities of and how to do it because it's a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad you pointed out that post because it's exactly the post I had in mind too, right? So, okay, for listeners who don't know what post I'm talking about, there was, I think it was a Senate hearing, like some kind of hearing on the U.S. government. You had a graphic picture of actually 
the people who have testified and then on the advocacy side you had i'm going to leave it for you to explain on the advocacy side you had a visual of the people and i thought it was fantastic post that you had yeah so i'll describe it and then i can send you a link and you can put it in the comments for this podcast so what i've done there were 30 people at least who were invited for this hearing for the u.s government and what i did was just looking up who these people were. And I noticed that those people are actually very easily divided into two groups. One group were heads of big slash huge tech, Microsoft, Google. Also, almost all of them were men. Almost all of them were white. But we had this huge camp. The majority of the people at that meeting were representatives of huge tech, sometimes even more than one person from a company. The other side were what I could call social justice advocates, right? So they would be civil society, academics. Most of them were women of color. So it's funny and sad also how we have this manufactured divide between huge tech slash men and civil society slash social justice advocacy slash women slash people of color. This division is manufactured and it forgets everyone else that should have a seat. It's really easy. There are some easy fixes, but you don't need multiple people from the same big tech company, for example. Just have fewer of them. Just have more kinds of people. Also, I'm not sure if they're the ones that should have a seat or is it maybe representatives or organizations who have studied this, who have something to say. Unfortunately, we have seen a similar trend previously. The European Commission had this committee called the HLAC committee. So that's the committee that created the documents on which the EOI Act is based. In that committee, we saw the very same trend. And I forget the exact numbers now, but I think it was half of the committee were big tech. And it can be really dangerous because I read in the journalistic expose that one of the representatives of one of those huge tech companies, when it came to producing AI principles, wanted literally to copy paste, I repeat, copy paste <laughs> the principles of that company. Wow. Yeah. So it starts with, you already have a meeting with 30 or 50 people. Think more carefully about who's invited. Yeah, and I think that needs to change. And that's one of the things that we are trying to do. Dr. Doten, should companies have a legal duty to disclose when they're using AI? Yes, I think they should disclose when they're using AI in addition to other really important metrics. Looking to make the most out of AI advancements and innovation? Visit regulatingai.org to learn more about how best to optimize the use and integration of AI. And sign up for the Regulating AI newsletter to keep up to date with the latest in AI governance and regulation. Dr. Dothan, final question. We've taken obviously an amazing amount of time from you. And this is something I can tell you, it comes up with members of Congress Senate. We have an election in 2024, and it's a big concern that AI deepfakes could play a big role. What are your thoughts about this? Yes. Number one safety measure, mark all your content in the election campaigns as authentic. So there are various initiatives going on in industry right now. There is a content authenticity initiative, for example. There is a DeepMind created, I forget the name of the tool, but we already have tools that can take content and mark it as authentic. They do it in various ways. The DeepMind tool can take an image and embed pixels in that image that are invisible to the human eye, but are there in the image that can be used to detect where this image is coming from. Comment of this initiative and others, what they do, they encrypt data information into the metadata of the file, that then later can be traced to say that this was real. 
Fraudsters, their goal is to defraud, to disseminate disinformation. We can't make them adopt tools that would, you know, they're always going to try to break stuff. But what if all the content that is actually authentic is marked as authentic and the user, and so one of those initiatives, when the content is marked as authentic, if it's on social media, the user can have a little icon, press on the icon, see the provenance of the content where it came from, right? So you can say that the signature of, I don't know, the Biden offense or whoever's running. If we have that, that can be, be really helpful protection against misinformation because everything that will not have that signature will know is very suspect. You are saying we need to use, whether it's watermarking or some of these other pixel technologies to fix it, because this time it's going to be all indications are that we're going to have a, unlike we've seen before with deep fakes, videos, images, etc. That's right. But our technology can play a big role is what you're saying. That's right. And I'll emphasize that marking not only content that is AI generated, because usually when people talk about marking, they talk about let's mark the content that is AI generated. No, all content market as authentic, right? Just like when I produce a Word doc, right? It has a signature of like my computer name. And then you know that I made it. It's from me. And so someone else who wants to make it seem like they created you know, something from my laptop, then I have to work a little harder. So the idea is something a little more sophisticated and a little more secure than that. But if all the content that comes from a campaign office has a very sophisticated signature, it's very easy to prove that something is not coming from that office or from any office. No, I think we need all these solutions because our democracy is really at risk by external as well as internal players. Again, Dr. Dothan, thank you so much for providing your insight on some very, very important topics. And as we are working towards building really a coalition to make sure we have good AI regulation that's not controlled by three or four big companies, I think voices like yours are very critical. So thank you for taking the time, Dr. Dothan. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the questions. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Regulating AI Innovate Responsibly podcast. You'll find links in the show notes to any resources mentioned on the show. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe so you'll never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review.